Well, good morning, Maple Grove. All right. You must want to get out early because you give me some love back already. Okay, is anybody out there ready for some living and active Word of God today? Amen. Check out what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 55, 10 through 13. Uh, The rain and snow come down from heaven and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. God says, it is the same with my word. I send it out. And it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere that I sent it. And here's what he says. I love this. You will live in joy and peace. Could you use some joy and peace in your life? I love this. The mountains and hills will burst in the song. The hills are alive with this. Oh, that's a different show. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. The mountains and hills will burst into song, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Where once there were thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew, myrtles will sprout up. These events will bring great honor to the Lord's name. There will be an everlasting sign of his power and of his love. Understand, God's word is going is to rain down on us this morning, October the 24th, 2021. It will water the ground, it will feed the hungry, and it will produce, it will accomplish, it will not return back void to God for those who are willing to receive it this morning. Amen? Amen. Now today we're going to finish our conversation called The Return of the King. We began last week and we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And I want to read those words again. Before I do that, a little Devo time uh, from this past week's Faith Comes From Hearing. Uh, This week, uh, a couple days ago, we read Genesis 37. And Genesis 37 reads this way. It's about Joseph. First chapter about him, by the way. uh, Son of Jacob. It says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guard. Meanwhile. Somebody say meanwhile. 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 See, what, what's going on in that chapter is Joseph is a little bit prideful about his dream. His brothers are jealous. They throw him into a pit. He, he is sold into slavery. But meanwhile, God is still working his plan. And I just want you to know, sometimes it, it seems like life throws us in a pit. Uh, Sometimes it feels like we're bound up in slavery. Uh, Sometimes the people who should love us most don't. And sometimes the people that should stand up for us don't. But I want you to know if you're in the pit right now or you're facing bound up in slavery, meanwhile, God's working his plan. Meanwhile, God is at work. Meanwhile, God is causing all things to work together for the good to those who love him. Sometimes I can use that word meanwhile. And I want to encourage you, I sent out a text today, if you're on our, on our, on our email list, with our Bible reading plan. Yeah, I, I don't do that, to, well, I kind of do that to get in your face a little bit, but the Word of God is powerful. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, if it wasn't for the Word of God this week, it would have been a, a tougher week than it was for me, but the Word of God showed up, produced fruit, and it did not return to him void. So I cannot encourage you enough to be in God's Word every day. Amen? Amen. Okay, here, here's the passage we dug in deep last week, but just hear it again. Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica. They're concerned about the brothers who had died in the Lord, concerned about the Lord's coming. 
Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who are falling asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Oh man, you got to love that. To meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I, I said last week that all of human history is moving towards four climactic events. A return. Listen, one day, it could be real soon, the sky will crack open, the trumpet will sound, and the Lord will descend. Uh, one day there will be a return. One day there will be a resurrection. Uh, right now, our loved ones in the Lord, they're, they don't have their body yet. How that works, that's up to God, right? I don't get it, but they don't have their body. They're with the Lord, and, and one day there'll be a resurrection. One day our loved ones who are alive and awake and conscious and with the Lord will get this brand new body, an imperishable body, and then there will be a rapture that we are still alive. We'll be caught up together with them in a brand new, resurrected, imperishable body to meet the Lord in the air. And we will experience the greatest reunion of all time. We will see them again. Uh, last week I had some folks, I had you all close your eyes and picture seeing those loved ones again. Yeah, I picture seeing my mom and my dad and my, my first wife, Judy, and my aunt. I, I pictured seeing a lot of people again, and it just put a smile on my face. And I looked out here, and I saw a lot of people thinking the same thing. Listen, you will see them again. You'll hug them again. You'll talk to them again, and you'll be reunited with them again. And the greatest reunion of all, you will be with the Lord again. He says, therefore, encourage each other with these words. We live in a dark, broken world, a hurting world, a sinful world, and we need to remind it that there is coming a return, a resurrection, a rapture, and a reunion. I had a good time last week if I was the only one. As we look at, looked at the hope in the return, the reality of the turn, and this morning we're going to talk about the preparation for his return, which I contend is the most important conversation we could ever have. And if you can think of a conversation more important than making sure that you're ready and other people are ready to meet the Lord, then you tell me right now and we'll pivot to that conversation, all right? If there's anything more important than that, I need to know about it. I need to throw my message away. But I contend you being ready to meet Jesus, because you will one day, and your loved ones being ready is the most important thing we could ever talk about. Get it? Good. It, you see, many of the followers of Jesus 2,000 years ago are like the, the followers today. They... They were both convinced and they were concerned. They were convinced that Jesus was coming again and they were concerned, not just for the loved ones, but they were concerned whether or not they would be ready when the trumpet sounds and the sky cracks open. Question, are you convinced that one day, and it could be in your lifetime, that Jesus will return? And are you ready? Come on. I love it. That's how you give a pastor love right there. Are you ready? Turn to the person to your right and left. If there's not one there, turn around backwards, whatever you need to do, and ask them, look at that and say, are you ready? 
Are you ready? I mean, if the trumpet were to sound at 3.33, I like threes, at 3.33 p.m. today, would you be ready? Or would you head out of here real quick and figure out what you need to do to, to get ready? Like, do you want to meet Jesus on your knees in praise and worship? Or to meet Jesus on your knees in fear and trembling? Are you ready? Okay, um, my line is, do you want to be ready? Your line is, yeah, I want to be ready. All right? And, and again, if you guys do it well, we can move on. If not, we'll camp out here for a while, all right? Do you want to be ready? Do you want to be ready? Do you want to be ready? Well, the good news, Paul tells us how to... Amen. <laughs> hey, they're ready over there. How to be prepared for the return. And, and being prepared for his return has nothing to do with knowing when and everything to do with being ready. And we're going to walk through these verses, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. And God longs to water our lives. He longs to produce in our lives and accomplish in our lives. Now, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we all should lean in right now with open eyes, open ears, open hearts and minds. Because the words we're about to say, if what we believe is true, this is about where people will spend forever. Heavenly Father, we humbly come into your presence. There's no one like you. No one compares to you. And Father, I pray that right now that all of us will remove every distraction from our mind, every thought from our mind, and just simply want to answer the question, are we ready? Are we ready to meet our King? Are we ready to meet the returning Jesus? And God, I pray that for anyone who's not ready, that they will become extremely uncomfortable. And God, I pray that we'll become extremely uncomfortable about the loved ones that we know who are not ready. But also pray that we will have great confidence that because of Jesus, we can be ready and long for his coming with joy and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. We do not need to write to you. Implying, Paul's implying, hey, you know what? I already taught you this stuff. You already know this stuff. I don't really need to write to you about that. It, it, it would kind of be like me saying, now brothers and sisters, about me being a New England Patriot fan, and about the Patriots being the greatest dynasty for two decades, I do not need to write to you, right? Uh, you already know that about me, right? Well, there's another time that Paul used that same expression, we do not need to write to you. It's right here in chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. He says this, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Yeah, you love each other, but we urge you to do so more and more. Now, now, now that phrase more and more is actually made up of two Greek words. One word is perisuo. It means to excel, to exceed, to abound, to have an abundance, to overflow. It's the word that was used to describe all the leftovers after the feeding of the 5,000. And the other word is the word Milan, which means still more to a greater extent. Jesus used it in Matthew 6 when he said that God loves you to a greater extent than he loves the birds in the air. 
And I think that's some great advice for, for us to strive to love one another more and more. I mean, we all can love better, right? Amen? We all can be more patient. We all can be more kind. We all can work at not being easily angered. We all can work at not keeping a record of wrongs. And we'll see later on that loving each other is one of the ways we prepare for the coming of the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. He uses two metaphors he, of Jesus coming. He comes as a, like a thief, and he talks about labor pains on a pregnant woman. I, I've witnessed one of those several times up close, and I experienced one of those personally. And I'll let you guess which one is which for that. And see, the trouble with the thief, they don't let you know they're coming. Many years ago, when I lived in Tampa, someone broke into our house. And I want you to know that if they would have sent me a postcard or a text and said, hey, Steve, we're going to rob your house today at 3 p.m., I, I would have stayed back to welcome them, right? As the old joke goes, with my two friends, Smith and, <laughs> Smith and Wesson. Hey, glad you guys are here. Nice to see you, right? The thing about thieves that they don't let you know when they're coming. And that's exactly how it'll be with the coming of Jesus. No one knows when. Get it? Good. In fact, in Matthew 24, Jesus says the exact same thing. In Matthew 24, Jesus first talks about all these signs that would happen prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The reason he gives them these signs is so his guys will know, hey, when all this stuff happens, that's when you know you need to leave the city so that destruction will not happen to you when Rome destroys the city. And according to history, not one Christian was left in the city when Jerusalem was destroyed. And after giving them the signs of Jerusalem's destruction, he transitions to talking about the day he'll return. Now that day he says this, For no one knows about that hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay? He's, Jesus said, no one knows. And the Greek word for no one knows means no one knows, right? And that's why I've always found it kind of silly that people write books and draw charts and hold seminars predicting when Jesus will come. In fact, when I left the Navy in 1988 at the age of three, <laughs> uh, here's two books that were the rage among many people. One was written by NASA scientists, 88 Reasons While Christ Will Return in 1988. And then a guy named Hal Lindsey wrote a book called 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon. Well, 33 plus years later, we're still here, right? I guess Jesus never got their memo. What's even crazier to me, these guys keep writing books, predicting Christ's coming, and people, if you're one of them, I apologize, you know, but people still keep buying the books. Jesus said, nobody knows. Now, we want to know, right? Even his disciples wanted to know. As a matter of fact, when Jesus got ready to ascend to heaven, his guys wanted to know. You know what he said to them? It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now this week I did some extensive research, and I found that the Greek word for it is not for you to know is the Greek word nanieia, 
No, you know what it is? That's Nunya, right? Nunya. It's, it's none your business, right? It, well, that was good. I worked hard on that one. Thank, thank you for the mercy laughs, okay? It's none of your business. It's not your job. Your job is to be his witness, right? Where you live, where you work. Now, why would people want to know when he's coming? Well, why do people want to know when the big boss is coming in town? Why do teenagers left home alone want to know when mom and dad are coming back? You see, if we know when someone is returning, we know how long we can do what we want to do and still have time left to get ready for their return. But here's the deal. Jesus will return at an hour that no one knows, just like a thief in the night. And so Paul continues. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul says that while people are saying peace and safety. In other words, while people are saying and thinking and believing, hey, everything's cool. Everything's all right. I'm fine doing what I'm doing. I'm fine being who I'm being. I'm fine living how I'm living. Everything's good. And suddenly, destruction will come upon them. I mean, as you look at our world, do you see a lot of people concerned about the return to Jesus? <laughs> I see people who are not. It's the same attitude that's been around for a long time. Jesus talked about it again in Matthew 24, talking about his return. He says this, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For the days before the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, just living life. People were going to sporting events, going to movies, going out to eat, hanging out with the friends, going on vacation, walking their dogs, dropping their kids off at school. Up until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. When people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now Paul, by making these two comparisons, a thief and labor pains, he's, he's saying that the second coming is going to be all of a sudden. Like suddenly in the middle of the night, the thief breaks in. Suddenly during the pregnancy, labor pains begin. And though there's an obvious similarity that it's sudden, there's also a difference. You see, Christ's coming will be sudden and unexpected like a thief, and it will be sudden and unavoidable like labor pains. In the first case, like a thief, there's no warning. In the second case, like labor pains, and oh my goodness, praise Jesus for allowing women to have kids and not men. There'd be like three people in the world It was up to us. It'd be like, that, there, no way. No way. You, you ladies are amazing. And everybody go home and love your mom. Do something nice for your mom. My goodness. I, I don't even want, it's crazy. But labor pains, there's like no escape. The, the door of the ark is closed. The flood came and took them away. While people are saying peace and safety. Everything's fine. We're good. Everybody says we're good. Twitter says I'm good. Hollywood says I'm good. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on the pregnant woman and they will not escape. They won't escape what? They won't escape the wrath of God. 
Paul already in his letter talked about the wrath of God. He said this about the Thessalonians. He said they were waiting, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, they were waiting for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. I don't know about you, but I find those words, the coming wrath, unsettling and terrifying. Hebrews 10, 31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And seriously, uh, I'm sorry to do this, but I, I want to press this weight, this terror on you more fully this morning. I want you to feel the weight of God's coming wrath. John in Revelation 6 reveals a horrifying picture of what the king's return will be like for many people. Revelation 6, 15 through 17 the Lamb, God's wrath is being poured out. And it says, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty. You see, no matter how powerful, no matter how wealthy, no matter how famous, no matter how well-known, no matter how admired, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, they call to the mountains and the rocks, follow us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? Picture that. Doesn't matter how rich you are. Doesn't matter how big your mansion is. Doesn't matter how many followers you have on Facebook, Instagram, on Twitter. Doesn't matter how many earthly awards you win, how many people admire you when you pass away. If you do not know the Lord, then you face the wrath of God. Do you know anyone at this moment that this will be their reaction when Jesus returns? Hide us. Rocks fall on us. As I said last week, if we're not prepared for his coming, our forever will not be that great resurrected reunion with the Lord forever, but rather the eternal, never-ending suffering in hell. And I'm not quite done increasing the weight of this on you, so hang in there. <laughs> in his book, Erasing Hell, Francis Chan opens up the chapter called What Jesus Really Said About Hell with These Words. He writes, as I write this chapter about hell, I'm sitting in the middle of a busy Starbucks. Every time I look up from my computer screen, I see that I'm surrounded by thirsty customers racing to the counter to fuel up on lattes and iced teas and mochas. They're happy, busy, enjoying life, laughing, chatting, and of course, texting. Two moms look as if they just got done jogging and sit next to me, digging into each other's lives. Another couple just left. They were all over each other. A typical young couple with a, out of care in the world. The last girl in line looks sad, really sad. It makes me wonder what just happened in her life. What about the employees? Are they happy? Some look that way, but others don't. Joy, laughter, coffee, jazz, texting, talking, flirting, friendship, depression, the hope to be free from it one day. This is life. I love it. So do they. The place buzzes with life. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here reading passage after passage after passage, which all say that some of these people are going to hell. He writes, it's sick as me to say that, and I can't explain how conflicted I feel right now. There are at least a dozen people within 10 feet of me right now 
right here that may end up in the agony that I'm studying. What do I do? I keep writing, keep studying? Should I bag this whole book thing and start building relationships with them? How can I believe these passages yet sit here silently? I know that some of you have faced the same conflict. Even as you're reading this, there are probably some people within a few feet of you or in your family or that you know who may also go to hell. What will you do? It could be the Lord wants you to put the book down. Coming face to face with passages on hell and asking these tough questions is a heart-wrenching process. It forces me back to a sobering reality. This is not just about doctrine, it's about destinies. This is not just about doctrine, it's about destinies. And if you're reading this book and wrestling with what the Bible says about hell, you cannot let this be a mere academic exercise. You must let Jesus, very real teaching on hell, sober you up. You must let Jesus' words configure the way you live, the way you talk, the way you see the world, and the people around you. Amen. So how are you doing? Seriously, how are you doing? Understand, this is the most important truth facing every single person that's breathing on this planet right now, whether they want to think about it or not, or whether you and I want to think about it or not. Get it? Good. If we're not prepared for his coming, our forever will not be that great resurrected union with the Lord, but rather the eternal, never-ending suffering of hell. Hell, a place that Jesus said is a place of fire and darkness. Jesus says is a place of never-ending weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, preparing for the return of the king is not about knowing when, it's about being ready. And Paul continues, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness. You're not like those who are saying peace and safety, yet are not ready. So that this day should surprise you like a thief. That key word is surprise. It's the Greek word, katalambano. It means to overtake, to seize, to lay hold of, to take possession of, especially with hostile intent. It's used in Mark 9 to describe a demon who took hold of a, a boy, and it's used of the man who lay hold of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And so Paul says this day should not surprise us. It should not overtake us. It should not seize us. It should not lay hold of us like a thief because we're not in darkness. We know it's coming and we're ready. Now darkness is a common metaphor in Scripture to describe those who are lost, those who are unbelievers, those who oppose or deny the truth of God, those who still live their lives influenced by the evil one and the ways of this world. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. And here's just a few verses that talk about the contrast between light and darkness. God, may we hear your word. This is the word of the Lord. This is a verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds were, were evil. In Acts 26, 17 and 18, Jesus is telling Paul, he's sending him on a mission to the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan, darkness to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified through faith in me. Ephesians 5.8 says this, For you were once darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. 
live as children of light. Colossians 1.3, for he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us in the kingdom of the son that he loves. Peter writes, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Amen. But you brothers are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all children of God, children of light, children of the day. We do not belong to night or darkness. So it shouldn't surprise us like a thief because we know he's coming and we know what it means to be ready. Take the thief metaphor. We're home, awake, lights on with a shotgun in our hand, right? So, hey, thief, you come, but we're, we're, we're here. In other words, because of who we are, children of the light and children of the day, our behavior, the way we live, must be different than those who live in darkness, right? Uh, Peter wrote about the same thing. He's talking about the earth being destroyed. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to, be, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed is coming. That they will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12, but in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep. And the word sleep here means unaware, to be unconcerned, to be unaffected, to be unaccepting of God's truth, to be lost. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and self-controlled. So we be ready for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. He says, let us be awake. Awake to what? Uh, awake to what God's Word says about living the Christian life. Awake to what God's Word says about sin in our lives. Uh, awake to our love for Jesus. Awake to the evil one and his schemes to pull us back into the darkness. Awake to what we say, think, and do. Awake to where we go and who we go with. Uh, awake to what our real priorities are, not what we, just what we say they are. Awake and alert. Like as you look back at the last week or two, are there any moments where if Jesus came back, you'd be like, oh man. I wish you picked a better time. <laughs> I wish you picked a better time when I wasn't gossiping about that person. I wish you picked a better time when I wasn't losing my temper. I wish you picked a better time when I wasn't clicking on that website. That was a bad time for you to come back, Jesus, right? So being alert and ready is being ready at all times, right? Doesn't mean we're going to mess up. Not because we mess up, but we've got to be ready, alert, and self-controlled. I love this verse about self-control. I think it explains it all. Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city whose walls are broken through. Walls were important in ancient cities, right? Why? Because a city without walls means anybody can get in, right? Walls keep bad people out. And so a city without walls means that anybody can get in. And when you and I do not have self-control, that means anything can get into our lives to destroy our lives. Amen? You hear what I'm saying? Without self-control, anything can get in. You're like that city with walls broken down. And listen, self-control always begins where? In our minds. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Here's the truth. How you think determines how you feel. 
And how you feel determines how you act, right? There's not one act of sin you ever committed that was not first a thought, right? And that's why we got to take every thought captive. Sinful thoughts, even thoughts of the enemy that says you're worthless. You're not worthless. Jesus died for you. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. He's talking about armor. He's comparing you and I being self-controlled in a way to a soldier suiting up for battle, right? Paul talked about that same imagery in Ephesians 6 and in Romans chapter 13. And so what, what keeps us in the light and protects our hearts so we'll be ready? Putting on faith and love as a breastplate, right? Putting on our faith in the all-powerful Giant slain, mountain moving, water pardoned, star breathing, life giving, dead rising, saving, crushing, sin defeating God. Amen? Putting our faith in Him and putting on our faith lived out. Living out the things we say we believe, living out the way God calls us to live. Now, how do we say self control and alert? By putting on faith and by putting on our love for God. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which means that. There's nothing or no one we love more than God. That God is our first love. And it means putting on our love lived out for others. Loving each other more and more and more. To be alert and self-control, we put on faith, our faith in God, our faith lived out, our love for God, our love for others lived out. And what protects our mind when the enemy is trying to mess with us, Right? The helmet of, helmet of what? Helmet of salvation. Helmet of what? Tell you, I thought I was alone for a second, all right? I know it's been a while, but helmet of salvation protects our mind, right? Protects our thoughts. The salvation that we already have in Christ Jesus, we are saved, we're delivered, we're redeemed, and the salvation we know that's coming that will be fully realized when Christ returns. And so when thoughts come into our mind, hey, I'm saved, I'm free, I'm redeemed, I'm forgiving, and I'm going to heaven. I know how this thing ends. It's all going to be okay. That protects our mind. The helmet protects our mind. And now Paul transitions from, first he was saying, hey, because of who you are, children of light, this is how you should live. And now he's going to go, hey, you know what? But who you are is not based on who you are. It's based on who God is and what God has already done, right? And there there he goes this. I love this. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. To To receive salvation through our feelings? To receive salvation through our own performance? No. We are who we are in Christ because of Christ. See, the same king that's coming, that's returning, is the same king who died for us. He died for us. And that's how serious this is, right? If you don't think this conversation is serious, Jesus Christ died. God died. God put on flesh and died. God was beaten. God was whipped. God was pierced. God hung on a cross for six hours because this matters. Because he wants everybody to be ready. He wants everybody to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're alive or whether we're with him already in death, 
He died for us so that whether awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. And here the encouragement is encouraging each other, hey, live as children of light. Encourage each other, hey, put on that breastplate of faith in God and faith lived out. And put on that helmet of salvation. Hey, I know things are hard in your life right now, but you know the final scoreboard, and the final scoreboard says you have a resounding victory in Jesus Christ, right? We're going to see a victory, right? Because the battle belongs to the Lord. We encourage each other. We build each other up. We're in a battle. We're in a fight. There's an evil one. Put on that breastplate. Put on that helmet. We encourage each other, and we build each other up so that we are ready when he returns. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I know I only have a few minutes allotted to me. I take usually, I wonder why I put a clock up there. I said, just to watch it, you know. I still got 30 minutes left. We're just getting started. But you're like, what the heck? Okay. And, but now's the time really to zero in. It, it's not going to be long. But as long as necessary. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Man, that's so good. But receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would be amiss to talk about getting ready, and we need to be ready, without talking about how we receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That would kind of be dumb. And again, if you're not ready, I want you to be ready. I want all of us, when he comes, not to say, man, could you, Big Rock, could you follow me? I want to say, Jesus, thank God you're here. It's so good to see you, right? And uh, so how do we receive this salvation? Uh, Jesus said this about being his disciple, becoming his disciple. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, how do we do that? Jesus said, by baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Then in Acts chapter 2, we have the very first time ever the gospel is preached. Ever. Peter preaches the sermon of the day of Pentecost. And, and they're like, oh, like, if you just found out you killed God, like, would you be concerned? <laughs> yeah, you know that guy you crucified? That was God's son. That was your Messiah. And you nailed him to a cross. You mocked him. You stripped him naked. And he hung there for six hours. That was God that you killed. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And they're like, oh my goodness. When the people heard this, they were cut to the hearts and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise, the promise that if you repent and are baptized, is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. 
And so to receive this salvation, we believe in who Jesus is. We repent of our sins. We repent of living a life where we're the boss. Anybody think they're a better boss than God, right? Anybody live like they're a better boss than God? Okay, a lot of us do, right? We're not. You're not. You're not a good boss. You are a lousy boss for your life. You are a lousy authority for your own life. Amen? You just are. You really are. And repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry for my sins. It's a guy, I've been the boss of my life, and I, it's a stinking train wreck. I need you to be the boss of my life. I need you to be in charge. I don't want to be in charge anymore. There's freedom in that. And then we're baptized, buried in the waters of baptism and rise to live a, a, live a new life. And I, I want to share something I think is pretty cool. In Revelation 20, verse 6, it's talking about their turn to Christ, and it says, Blessed are holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death, the second death is the lake of burning sulfur. Okay, I don't want to go there, right? It's where Satan is thrown in. I don't want to go there. Your name's not in the book of life. That's where you're ending up. I don't want to go there. But those who share in the first resurrection, the second death has no power over them. And I was looking at it this week, and it's like, okay, you know, okay, what is the first resurrection? Well, I think help me answer that question. What is the first death? See, the first death is spiritual death. God told Abram, Adam, rather, when you eat this fruit, you will what? You will surely die. Did he die physically right then? No. But what happened right then? He was separated from God. His sin separated him from God, right? Sin separation from God. And the Bible says the wages of sin is what? It's death. It's separation from God, okay? So the first death is spiritual death. And, and there, there, there's a couple verses, um, Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, Romans 6, 3 through 6. Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, Romans 6, 3 through 6. But here's one in Colossians where you see the first death and the first resurrection in the same conversation. Would you hit that next slide? Have been buried with him in baptism and raised, first resurrection. Have been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, whom raised him from the dead. Next slide. When you were dead in your sins, first death, in an uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive, first resurrection. He forgave us all our sins. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death. Blessed and holy are those who are Jesus followers. Those whose names are in the book of life. Right? Those who have taken part in the first resurrection, who have died their sins and raised to live a new life. The second death has no power over them. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage each other and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. On October 8, 1871, the Chicago fire had just started. And D.L. Moody was preaching that Sunday night. And he ended the service by saying, hey, you know, it's a big deal receiving Christ and committing to him. 
And I want you to think about it this week. And next week, come prepared to make a decision. Little you know that fire would burn for three or four days and that some of the people in that very audience would not make it back to the next Sunday you know, to make a decision. And I say that to scare you, <laughs> to terrify you, to make you uncomfortable and unsettled. That if you are not right with God right now, man, Jesus died so that you could live. Jesus died so you could be with him forever. You know, I, and maybe you aren't thinking about it today, but, but there's a, a baptistry back there. And today you could be buried with Christ and you can rise to live a new life. If you want to talk, if you don't, you want to talk about this with me some more, but there's nothing more important than you being ready. There's nothing I want more than you being ready and your loved ones being ready. Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. There's going to be a return, a resurrection, a rapture, and a reunion. And we do not have to be surprised. But we can be ready. We can put on the breastplate of faith and love and hope as our helmet. Hope of salvation as our helmet. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, I need your help. We need your help. Your word is true. You are coming back. And you're coming back to bring salvation to your people and to pour out your wrath on those who are, do not know you and who have rejected you. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would move among this room in our hearts that, that each person... We just make sure we're ready and that we're living as children of light. And if someone needs to make a decision, God, I pray they make it now. Lord, our salvation is not based on what we do. It's not based on what we don't do. It's based on who you are. And it's based on the depth of the love that you have for us. A love that sent Jesus to the cross. A sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. Thank you, Jesus, for paying a debt you did not owe because each of us owed a debt we could not pay. And as we sing this song, may we celebrate the depth of the Father's love for us. Amen.